Thanks for checking out this episode of the Screen Facts with Jason Davis podcast. In each episode, we talk about a movie and share some fun trivia facts. Please check for the latest episode of the podcast on Wednesdays. Please like us at facebook.com slash screenfacts and post your comments or questions. You can also email screenfacts at yahoo.com or you can tweet me at Jason Davis Voice. To listen to past episodes of the show, visit jasondavisvoice.com slash podcast. Well, joining me on this episode of the show, my lovely wife, Sue. Why, thanks, honey. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to go back to the 1980s once again. Once again. Why not? This is a fun movie, though. And I think it's only the second time we've talked about a musical on the show. Really? How is that even possible? What's that all about? Little Shop of Horrors, originally released December 19th, 1986. Now, the movie stars Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, Vincent Gardenia, Steve Martin, and cameos from Bill Murray, John Candy, Jim Belushi, and Christopher Guest. Now, I have to uh, put a little asterisk there. Okay. Because Jim Belushi is in the theatrical version. I know. We watched the director's cut. Yep. And I got to say, it's a great investment. If you're a fan of this movie, get the Blu-ray director's cut of Little Shop of Horrors for a lot of reasons. First off, the transfer is great, the higher resolution, great soundtrack. But the director's cut has the original ending of the movie. Now, normally, director's cuts were kind of like, eh, right? Mm, Yeah, I don't think there's been too many that we've said, oh, gosh, why didn't they just go with that one? This is the exception to that rule. Yeah. The director's cut, I think, is so much better because it's the same ending or a similar ending to the Broadway show. Right. Or off-Broadway show. Right. The only reason that they changed the ending in the theatrical release was because of test audiences not liking it. Yeah. Because, it, you know, the ending in the director's cut is not quite as happy. Not quite. Not <laughs> quite. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah, I definitely think that the original ending, the way it was ri- originally written for the stage, mm-hmm. makes sense in the movie, too. Mm-hmm. And I think it was also written that way for the movie, the original from the 1960s. The Roger Corman movie. Yeah. Okay. I think pretty much anyone who had seen that little B-movie or Mm -hmm. the show, when they saw this come out in the theaters with Seymour and Audrey living, Mm -hmm. they were pretty shocked. And it's funny that you say that because I really didn't have any knowledge about the show when I saw the movie, for all the years I've been watching the movie. I saw the movie when it first came out in theaters. And I I actually have a memory about that, which I'll talk about in a second. I, I also want to mention one thing. Paul Dooley, mm-hmm. character actor, plays the Jim Belushi role in the director's cut. Yes. And I think when they had to reshoot the new ending, he wasn't available anymore. So right. that's where, why Jim Belushi came in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're both great yeah. in the role. Yeah. It's just different. They're so, both funny. And then each version has a special thanks to the other guy. Right. Right? In the exactly. credits. Exactly. Yeah. So getting back to um, what we were saying, I'm going all over the place. I apologize. So I originally saw the movie when it first came out. And I have, I have a very distinct memory of seeing it with uh, a friend of mine, Anthony Zajek, who actually, I call him my friend, but he was sort of family because he was my stepfather Gordon's grandson. Oh, well, okay. Well, sort of step-grandson. It's okay. kind of crazy. But and then we became friendly when, you know, once we got to know each other because we were both around the same age. And I remember seeing this movie and I, I want to say it was Richfield Park at the Rialto Theater. And Anthony, if you hear this, let me know. Comment on, on Facebook. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, we were saying how if you hadn't seen the show originally and all you knew was the movie, then the happy ending was perfectly acceptable. She what? <laughs> but <laughs> you and I saw a production of the, the stage version of yeah. this at, at the local high school. Yeah, and they did a great job. Great and job. 
you know, the plant ate Audrey. And I kind of sat up in my seat a little like, <laughs> oh, this is unusual. Yeah. I'm like, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> then the plant ate Seymour. Yeah. Wait, wait a what? second. <laughs> yeah. So in the movie, um, spoiler alert, in the director's cut, Audrey and Seymour both get eaten by Audrey too. Right. And then little Audrey 2s take over the world. Yeah. And it's awesome. It's the footage so is fantastic. fun. Yeah. They literally just start destroying America because you see them with all the different landmarks. I'm trying to think there's, you know, different cityscapes and the plants, you know, going through it is, oh, it's like Godzilla, you know, and at the end when they <laughs> climb up on the Statue of Liberty, it's great. Yeah, they don't destroy the Statue of Liberty, but it's they're just kind of hanging on there and you're kind of expecting that. Yeah, but yeah. But yeah, so definitely recommend if you're a fan of Little Shop of Horrors, get the Blu-ray director's cut. Mm-hmm. You'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I heard that when they did the testing, the audience was super excited and every musical number actually got applause. Okay. They were so into it. And then when they killed the leads, Frank Oz <laughs> said that the theater just became a refrigerator. Oh, no. It was an icebox. It was awful. So um, the rating cards that they got <laughs> had a 13 on them. That was like the total score. Okay. And you have to have a 55 to actually be able to be released. Oh, wow. So they, So yeah. 13 was the highest score? Or, Thir- like, or like the like total? Like the average or total or something. Oh, yikes. Yeah, I don't know how that works exactly. <laughs> so, you know, the, and the studio said, you have to redo this. Uh, yeah, movies are a little different than stage, I guess. And didn't Frank Oz have like a, a theory about that too? Yeah, he said that, you know, if you see a Broadway show or, you know, any kind of show, and the characters die, then the actor comes out for a bow. So you know they're not really dead. And in the I, movie, you don't have that. It's, you know, they're dead, boom, credits. I get but that. And I, and I think if there wasn't an original show that the movie was based on that mm-hmm. had the less than favorable ending or whatever. Yeah, well, and the original movie. Right. I kind of get wanting to have a happy ending for the two characters. Sure. And, sure. and the way they did it was kind of cool, too, with the, you know, the little plan at the end and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like if you're going to do a movie version of a play, mm-hmm. you got to be true to the original. I agree. And and that's why I appreciate the director's cut ending more. Me too. It is so. called Little Shop of Horrors. Right. Horrors, people. Yes. It's a horror movie. <laughs> yes. It's musical, but it's a horror musical. So Ellen Green is actually the only member of the off-Broadway cast to appear in the movie. Yeah. She did that role for four years. Yeah. She originated the role in 1982, mm-hmm. and it was actually her idea to wear the blonde wig in the show, too. Oh, cool. Because she has cool. dark hair. And that voice, is it just cracks me up. She's a riot because she does her wimpy little talking voice. Oh, you know, a doctor. Oh, yes. I see more. Okay. <laughs> and then when even when she sings the first couple times, she's very restrained. Mm-hmm. And then that way when she opens up and suddenly see more, it's like, yeah. where did that voice come from? Yeah. She's awesome. I, I've seen her in other things, too, that I've really enjoyed her in. She's very, very good. Yeah, yeah. She was in Pump Up the Volume, which is another movie we talked about on the podcast, <laughs> and Talk Radio. I heard in 2015, and I don't know how I missed this, she actually reprised Audrey in Little Shopper Horrors, the stage concert at the New York City Center. Oh, okay. As part of their Encore's Off Center series. That's very cool. That would have been so cool to see. I yeah. don't know if it was a full production. It was Maybe it was you know a staged reading kind of deal. They did a revival of the show in around 2003, 2004, 
And they had, you know, regular cast. And then, like, I guess toward the end of the run, they had a little bit of stunt casting. Joey Fatone, okay. formerly of NSYNC, and now he's, like, the announcer on Family Feud and he does other stuff. But he, he came in as Seymour for that. Huh. He probably was really good. He's yeah. got a really good voice yeah. and he's, you know, got a good sense of humor. So I think he probably would have been really good. You think he can pull off nebbishy? Because to me, Seymour's is very so. nebbishy. Yeah, I think so. You put, you know, nerdy glasses on him. Yeah. Okay. That's why they call it acting. Acting. Brilliant. Acting. Rick Moranis. His stature is certainly more like the part. Yeah. But, I uh, saw a lot of Lewis Tully in this. So which movie came out first? Ghostbusters. Little Shop or Ghostbusters? Okay. Ghostbusters 84. Okay. Yeah. It was similar. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. There were some moments where we were even were like, oh, who brought the dog? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When he starts at one point when he's like, leave me alone. Get out of here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That sounded that a lot it. like yeah. Lewis Tully yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> As far as casting, we should also mention Levi Stubbs mm-hmm. of Motown Legends' The Four Tops mm-hmm. was the voice of Audrey too. Yeah. The original script wanted a sound cross between Otis Redding, Barry White, and Wolfman Jack. I think they pulled that off. Yeah. He said, think of the voice as that of a street smart, funky, conniving villain. Rhythm and <laughs> Blues answer to Richard III. Nice. <laughs> now, they originally were uh, considering Eddie Murphy, too. Okay. Which I think would have been pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean he, and he can sing too. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, he doesn't have that deep thing. Yeah, though, that, yeah. There's probably, something about that. Yeah, food. I can't do it. You do it. Feed me, Seymour. There you yeah. go. <laughs> I mean, um, Eddie Murphy was really at the top of his game at that time yeah, too. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that they had approached him. Yeah. And Vincent Gardenia insisted that he was chosen as Mushnik because Frank Oz liked his name. Oh, that's funny. I guess if you're going to cast, yeah, if you're going to cast the guy that uh, runs the flower shop, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought he was good. Besides that, yeah, sure. His name got him in the door. His so, talent took him to the top. So directed by Frank Oz, screenplay by Howard Ashman, based on his musical play. Roger Corman and Charles B. Griffith are um, credited with uh, the original film and the original screenplay. The estimated budget, $25 million. Mm-hmm. Domestic gross, $38.8 million. So not a huge moneymaker. Hmm. But I think this is, again, one of those movies that really got legs on video yeah. and on cable and all that kind of stuff. This is maybe more of a cultish kind of film. Yeah, I wonder. Probably. There's a landscaper working outside right now. Uh, and I'm not sure if you're going to be able to hear them in the background or not. If you do, I apologize. We're not going to stop. We're going to keep going. Okay, let's keep going. (laughs) There's something ironic about hearing a landscaper working while we're talking about a giant plant. Yeah, (laughs) that's kind of funny, actually. (laughs) So nominated at the Oscars, actually, too, for Best Mm -hmm. Visual Effects and Best Original Song for Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. Nice. Yeah, because all the other songs were from the show. Right. And it also received Golden Globe nominations for Best Comedy or Musical and Best Score. Cool. Yeah, the music is great, and and it's and it really holds up because it's done in that it classic duopish fifties got... kind of rock and roll. Yeah, Meatloaf meets uh, <laughs> um, Phil Spector. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love the the girls. Mm-hmm. They're what's considered a Greek chorus, right? Which is funny because I actually did a little bit of reading about a Greek chorus. Of Uh course I did. You went deep, didn't you? I went so deep. I didn't realize that, you know, in ancient Greece with the tragedies and comedies, they had the chorus. Mm -hmm. In the script, there'd be like a paragraph of dialogue and the entire chorus would have to do it in unison and super loud and super clear 
so people could hear them at the back of the amphitheater. Okay. So that's where the unity of the chorus came from. Okay. So that's why I thought the girls were so great that they were singing, because mm-hmm. obviously it's easier to understand people when they're singing stuff. Right. And their costumes, all their matching costumes were just so adorable. Yeah. Well, they were obviously a take on the 60s girl groups, right. like the Supremes mm-hmm. and the Ronettes. And, and in fact, they gave them cool names for that reason, that's right. too. Mm-hmm. Crystal, Ronette, and Chiffon. Yeah. <laughs> they're all, you know, named after famous girl groups. Yeah, yeah. But they're only dressed like that when they're being the chorus. Right. Because then when they're interacting with Mushnik. Yeah, like when they're in front of the store. Yeah, they're just in regular street clothes. Yeah, and he's like, get, and it, get away. You yeah, and their hair isn't done and urchins stuff. Urchins or whatever he calls them. Yeah. <laughs> then they show up in their glittery gowns, you know, with their hair bouffanted and stuff, if that's a word. Yeah, um, originally Frank Oz wanted to have like sort of a spotlight on them, but it, it didn't really... Logistically, it couldn't really yeah. work, um, you know, for a movie because it would kind of spill into yeah, the rest that would be of the... easier on stage. Yeah, yeah, on stage, you could definitely do that. So instead of that, because he couldn't pull off the lighting, mm-hmm. uh, magically, they remain dry during the rainstorm in the beginning. Interesting. Which I think is kind of cool. like cartoon characters. One of the things that you and I were both sort of marveling when we were uh, watching the movie mm-hmm. is how awesome the set was. Oh, my gosh. For me, what I like about it is that, you know, it's a movie, but... The set almost feels like a show, like yeah. a Broadway show. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's which very... is great. I'm thinking that's what they were hoping to capture. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, because... It... You know, it's stylized. And, yeah, exactly. You know, when you look in the distance, it's obviously not realistic what you're seeing. Right. It's you like, know, it looks like, like a painted that. background. Yeah, 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 it's cool. And the lighting. And... Even oh, the way Frank Oz or the director of photography filmed the close-ups, especially during the, the Skid Row song, mm-hmm. you could kind of see... A very like show sort of thing with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just I just really liked how it was done. Where they filmed it is actually very interesting. Did you read about this? I did not. All the scenes were filmed at Pinewood Studios in England. It was actually the largest studio set in the world at that time, the 007 stage, they called it. Nice. Um, they didn't want to shoot on location because they felt it, it would kind of ruin the fantasy. They wanted to have a, a fantastical look. That makes sense. So part of the stage, when they were filming Suddenly Seymour, was so cold that you would see the actor's breath and they didn't want that. Okay. So what they did, they put ice cubes in their mouths between takes to cool off their mouths, which that, I think is a very cool trick. That and is. Very interesting. That's good to know if you ever need that for Yeah, well, because they didn't have CGI back then. They right. could just edit out the breath. Didn't they also do that for League of Their Own? I think they might have. I think so. For some of the stuff. They some nights have, it was yeah. cold, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because there's it's other crazy. movies where it's supposed to be the summer and it's they filmed in, the, like, Bull Durham yeah. is another one uh-huh. we talked about mm-hmm. on the podcast. You can see their breath in the night game scenes. Right. But it's supposed to be the summer. Right. So, you know, you kind of forgive it because it's such a good movie. Though. Yeah. So there's some other really big movies that were filmed in this studio, which I think is very interesting. All the James Bond movies, but also all four Superman movies with Christopher Reeve, Aliens, Full Metal Jacket, Tim Burton's Batman, and Star Wars The Force Awakens. So uh-huh. they're still using this studio. That is cool. You know, that's neat because when you think about Tim Burton's Batman, mm-hmm. that's also another very stylized set. Yes, very much so. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. The other thing, you, you talked about CGI. They didn't have CGI yeah, back then. Yeah. That's one of the things that's remarkable about mm-hmm. this movie, by the way. Yeah, all the things they get the plant to do just by puppetry and camera angles. Amazing. And how many different puppets they used. Mm-hmm. And that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. The creativity cannot be uh, understated. It's just just incredible how well they put everything together. Yep. The puppeteers, depending on the size or version of the plant, they might have four people working mm-hmm. it. Well, obviously, the little one would be one. Right. But four up to 50. 
depending on if you're seeing the full shot and the pot and the roots and all of that. The puppeteers themselves had four months to rehearse before they even started. And it was learning how to work the lip sync controls Mm -hmm. and also just building up strength. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, exhausting. I, I would have to think that the biggest of the Audrey Two puppets yeah. is pretty heavy. Heavy, yeah. And it's really amazing because you know when you look at a Muppet, mm-hmm. like let's say Kermit the Frog. When Kermit the Frog talks, it's just a mouth opening and closing, right? Right. But with this, the lips sort of move yeah. too to articulate the different words. Yeah, like in and out. Especially and... when he's singing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool. Yeah. That that's all done with puppetry. Yeah. I actually said it's amazing how expressive the face of the plant is. It doesn't even have eyes. Yeah. That's true. Exactly. When, especially when it's a smaller plant yeah. that's in the Maxwell House can and mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you really you really go, that's a real life thing. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. That's, you know. Yeah. And I love the colors of it. And then mm-hmm. all the details when it opens the mouth. Mm-hmm. I guess we wouldn't be giving away too much if we let it out that it's actually an alien plant yeah. from outer space you yeah. know again anybody so it's nothing to realistic it's just color and fangs and yeah. oh the shot from inside the mouth oh yeah oh um with uh, the dentist yeah number. oh yeah. my gosh love that yep yeah that's actually been done again since this yeah they did it in a kiss movie detroit rock city there's a concert scene mm-hmm. in detroit rock city and they show the perspective from inside gene simmons mouth when he's wagging his tongue which is very funny oh funny that's great <laughs> that's great yeah, so the creativity and the, the artistry is just, again, off the chart mm-hmm, in this movie. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. Actually, they couldn't even make the lips work at the right speed. The lips on the plant didn't look right, moving at the normal speed of 24 frames per second. Okay. They couldn't move fast enough for the pre-recorded songs because okay. they had pre-recorded the songs and then right. they were doing that. So they had to film the puppets at 12 to 16 frames per second, Okay. speed up the playback to the standard 24 frames. So that means that if there was an actor singing or talking side by side with the puppet, they were moving in slower motion. So they had to talk like this, like move their mouth like this. So until in editing it got put up to speed. Wow, that's crazy. And Alan Green said that Oz's attention to detail just really worked because he even taught her how to walk accurately alongside the plant at 12 frames per second wow. so that it would look normal. Well, Frank Oz definitely has a little bit of knowledge about puppetry. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Yoda, Miss Piggy. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy's a genius. Mm-hmm. The old woman who begins the song Skid Row downtown mm-hmm. is Tony nominated for Requiem for a Nun in 1957. Singer, actress, comedian, Bertice Redding. She sang her part in the song Live on the Set, which nice. I think is very cool. And she's got an awesome voice. She also provides the vocals on the soundtrack. This was her final film appearance before her death from a stroke in 1991, Aww. which is sad. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I was surprised that all the actresses that play Crystal Ronette and Chiffon did their own singing. Yeah. One of them is Tisha Campbell, who later went on to be on the show Martin with oh, Martin Lawrence. Oh, yes. Okay. So who knew That's... she was a singer, too? Okay. I heard that Barbara Streisand and Cindy Lauper were supposedly offered the role of Audrey. Um, Did you hear that? I heard that, and I also read Madonna. Barbara Streisand, I can't see at all. Because yeah. she was pretty... She's just too... Like, she would have been too old, I think, for the part at that oh, time. Oh, I wasn't going there. I was just well, no. she's so and plus, plus strong. Two. And, and two, I don't think she could... I don't know if she yeah. could pull off meek. This is not a knock on Barbara Streisand. Yeah, no. She's probably too good. <laughs> I think, like of a singer, to, you know. Yeah. I just, she just doesn't look right for the part. And yeah, when yeah. I say old, I'm not saying that she was old. I just feel like, I think she would have looked old next to Rick Moranis. True. Does that okay. make sense? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, they paired feel, up very well together. Yeah, they did. If you could get the actress who originated the role, why yeah, not? Yeah, why not? I guess unless you're thinking, well, she's not a big name, whatever. And Cindy Lauper was really sort of big at that time. Mm-hmm. And Madonna, again, not really a great singer and not uh, an actress. No, but yeah. she was so popular that yeah. you know, 1986. Of course, they're going to want to reach out yeah, to I her. I suppose. I never heard that. Yeah, I'm glad they went with Ellen Green. She's yeah, she knocks it out of the me park too. for sure. Mm-hmm. I love Steve Martin in this movie. Oh, oh, oh. Just when you think the movie can't get any better, Steve Steve Martin Martin comes in. Steve Martin is so brilliant. The great thing about Steve Martin is his physicality. Yes. Mm -hmm. I I love the way he, you know, he rides the motorcycle and then he jumps off the motorcycle and then kind of does the little thing when it parks itself. But even when he's like lifting up the uh, the dentist chair with his foot, oh yeah, he's like and doing, he's doing it, like, like rock whole, and roll. Yeah, with the shoulders. He's doing like almost like, like an Elvis move. <laughs> We're both yeah. doing it. We can't obviously yeah. you can't oh, see it. Oh boy, we look good doing it. Too. But it's so funny. He's so good. Supposedly, it took him six weeks to film all of his scenes. Okay, and he kind of you know came up with some of the ideas for the character, yeah. uh, punching the nurse in the face, ripping oh. off the the doll's head, oh. which I think are both great little so awesome. you know, little things yeah. when he's singing. That nurse took a beating. Yeah. She got punched and knocked yeah, the out, door. and then she got hit by the door. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, you know, that's not bad, though. If I were that actress and I yeah. would be saying, yeah, I'm the nurse who got beat up, <laughs> I'd be happy with that. Yeah. And Bill Murray also ad-libbed uh, a lot of the stuff that he did in, in his little oh, cameo, man. which is great as well. Yeah. The fact that he brings his own little dental bib. Yeah. And then starts loading up his mouth and filling up his cup for spitting. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's so funny. Candy bar! Candy bar! Candy bar! Candy bar! Yes! 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 That part? That Bill mm-hmm. Murray plays. Mm-hmm. You know who played in the original Little Shop, right? Jack Nicholson. Yeah. It was one of his first roles. I got to find that on YouTube. Watch this scene. I'm sure you can find it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that'd be very interesting. Sure it's out there. But remember, though, it's not a musical, the original no, Little Shop. No, no. So the dentist's office uh, originally was going to be grungier and blood splattered and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Test audiences didn't like that either. Test audiences need to get over themselves. I guess they felt like it's a dentist's office. It's supposed to be sterile and everything else, maybe. I don't know. I guess. Or maybe have the waiting room clean so like you feel a little confident there your first time and then like you open up the doors to the back office and it's just like chaos. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we talked about how this was filmed in the same studio as the 1989 Tim Burton Batman movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually used some of the same equipment that the surgeon working on the Joker used uh, okay. for, for Dr. Scrivello. Props! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was someone there, someone the props master was like, you know, I have something that I think will work. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess why not? I mean, you know, we've <laughs> talked about on past episodes of the podcast how they uh, reuse whole sets. Sure. Especially for presidential stuff, mm-hmm. you know, when they have to do something in the White House. Sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> So one other thing about Steve Martin, too, there's a scene where his character pushes open the double swinging doors to Audrey's apartment complex. Well, Steve Martin cut his hand when the glass windows shattered. The final cut, he's kicking the door open. because (laughs) (laughs) Probably a good idea. The outtake where he cuts his hand is actually one of the features on the the DVD Uh Blu-ray. What a trooper. Yeah. It's kind of cool that somewhere that's green is uh, a big number and her name is Ellen Green. Oh, I never thought of that. (laughs) Mind blown. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, so the shot pulling away from Audrey um, after the song, Somewhere Mm -hmm. on the Screen, was so long that they had to use two cranes, one placed on top of the other to pull it off. So um, in musicals, there's what's called an I Want song. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that term or not. I'm not. And since you're the person with all the stage background, why don't you explain what that is? 
Well, and I want song, just so you know, is you have a character who obviously wants something. So this is a great way to develop character without taking part of the scene. Mm -hmm. And there's also, you know, there's whole big debates where the I want song should be in the story and this and that. But the I want song for Audrey was actually created by lyricist Howard Ashman and composer Alan Menken. I don't know if those names just jump out at you. They did for me. Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid. And they've also done other stuff, too. Ariel's I Want song is part of your world. Okay. If you think about it. Up in the sea, wish I could be part of your world. And that was largely inspired by Somewhere That's Green. Okay. So they actually said that they used to call part of your world Somewhere That's Wet. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it's it's probably not really that uncommon for artists to borrow from themselves. Sure. I mean, you know, the greats all do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with that personally. Yeah. Why not? Why not? So the puppeteers who designed and operated Audrey 2 were all veterans of Jim Henson's company, including his son, Brian. Audrey 2's on-camera growth at the end of Grow For Me mm-hmm. was done by putting the plant on a track hidden by the flower pot and then moving it closer to the camera, which Genius. I think is really cool. Genius. And I think I also read that one of the puppeteers was played the, the wino in the first scene. Oh, okay. <laughs> they got Very him cool. on camera. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Um, you know, we mentioned no CGI, no blue screens or, uh, or opticals involved. Mm-hmm. Again, all puppetry, very, very creative. Mm-hmm. The plant was made in six different stages of growth, and there were three different versions of Mushnik's shop, Okay, which made it possible for two units to work with different sized plants at the same time. That must have been crazy. Man, it's a good thing they used that big soundstage. Yeah, absolutely. Roughly 15,000 handmade leaves, 2,000 feet of vine, and 11.5 miles of cable (laughs) were used to make Audrey 2. Each of the talking plants had to be cleaned, repainted, and patched up at the end of each shooting day, which would take up to three hours, depending on the size. Mm -hmm. Talk about a labor of love, man, this movie... And that's the thing, you know, we watch these movies and we're entertained and we enjoy the music, we enjoy the performances and all that. And it's only when you do a, a podcast like this and you start to look up details and facts and trivia and all that, mm-hmm. that you go, man, I really appreciate this film on a whole different level now. Yeah. Because of what all the work that went into creating it. Yep. And it was such a slow go with the plant. I mean, think right. about it. They're doing that, you know, the lip syncing in slow-mo. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they got like three or four lines of a song done, and that was the day. That was all day. So no wonder it needed touching up because it had to look just as fresh because you were you're seeing all seeing it all in one musical number. Right. It's fun, and here we are, more than thirty years later, and it still stands up. It mm-hmm. still it still plays well. It doesn't look dated. It's got I, that like classical '50s '60s look to it that just always yeah. That's probably why it's still yeah. It's a sort of a period piece. Yeah, you know, it takes place in the '60s. It's really yeah. When you think about it, it's 50s. not like a typical '80s movie. Yeah, because they're talking about you know President Kennedy and right, stuff like right, that. Right. So, and I appreciate certain things too, like John Candy's character, oh, the DJ, the yes. wacky DJ, the hair rolled up on his head. Oh my head. god, the crazy hair, and then like you know, it's weird, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, my neck. And he, yeah, and he does the noise, the, yep. noise maker. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the music. It's I've great. always liked it, you know, mm-hmm. from watching the movie mm-hmm. and stuff. But the music's really a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. The lyrics are great, very mm-hmm. clever. Yeah. And the music itself is great. Mm-hmm. And the production of the music, I think, is really special, too. And we didn't realize this. We're, we're watching the movie and the opening credits, and a name pops up on the screen. I go, hey, we know that we guy. We know that name. 
So the producer of the soundtrack is Bob Gaudio. Yeah. Bob Gaudio, if you're a fan of Jersey Boys mm-hmm. and the Four Seasons, mm-hmm. you know who he is, obviously. <laughs> he was uh, one of the original Four Seasons. Yeah. Wrote most, if not all, of the Four Seasons' biggest hits yep. and did some producing of their stuff as well. He's written other stuff, too, for other artists. And that's what I was going to say before. We were talking about how this is shot Mm -hmm. and how it looks almost like they filmed a stage play Mm -hmm. in in certain areas. And I like that. Mm -hmm. The Jersey Boys movie, I felt, didn't get that. Yeah, that's true. Jersey Boys show, when we saw it, was fantastic. Oh, it was so good. When we saw the movie, we kind of, you know, were left a little flat, right? Yeah, I think that, well, I think they went for more realism with it. Maybe. And I don't know if that's because Clint Eastwood was the director I don't know. I don't know. But Frank Oz must have some sort of a love for theater. Yeah, yeah. Because the way he directed this mm-hmm. and the way this was shot is definitely, I think, a really good way to do a musical. Yeah, it kind of reminded me, remember, I don't know if it was like Channel 4 or Channel 7, you know, they'll broadcast musicals once in a while. Right, like Grease and, Live, like yeah, Fox, yeah. NBC and Fox have done it. Yeah, but when we saw Hairspray... Yeah. I'm thinking now the way this was filmed, like it moved from scene to scene, but mm-hmm. yet fully, you're seeing a fully staged number. It kind of reminded me how they did Hairspray. Okay. I think it's great. Yeah, I do too. Alan Menken said that it's unusual that you would write the first song first for a show. Okay. But they pretty much just jumped in and started working on the title song. Okay. And <laughs> he said, when you think about that time and like those horror movies from that time, you think of like, you know, beach blanket horror and monsters coming out of the sea and bubblegum rock and roll is playing. <laughs> so that's why they, they went with that. The juxtaposition is actually very funny. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah. But if you listen to the lyrics, mm-hmm. it really is about, you know, horror and death and mm-hmm. greed. And, you yep. know, they thought it just set the tone Yeah. to say, look at what greed will do. Yep. It's very well done. Yeah. The music is all from the Broadway show, so it works on the stage and it works in the film. Yes. Very well. Yes, it does. The original production of Little Shop of Horrors premiered off-off Broadway at the WPA Theater May 6, 1982. It was then transferred off-Broadway to the Orpheum Theater. It ran between July 27, 82 and November 1, 87 for a total of 2,209 performances. The musical made its Broadway debut at the Virginia Theater, where it ran between October 2, 2003 and August 22, 2004. That was the revival with Joey Fatone that we mentioned earlier, totaling 372 performances. During its original run, the show was so popular, it had touring companies in England, France, Israel, Japan, and Germany. Can you imagine? Yes, I can. It was also touring all around America, too, at that point, I bet. Yeah. You know, Chicago and L.A. and other places. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> hope that they uh, that they revive it again. That'd I, be cool. I would love to see I this. I would see it. You know, we had a good time when we saw it at the high school. They did a good job. Yeah. But, I mean, I think it just would be fun to see professional actors mm-hmm. on stage doing this show. Yeah. That reminds me, when we watched the director's cut and it finished up with... You know, all the plants taking over America, mm-hmm. you could hear a little bit of the closing number from the show. Right. Which don't is, feed the plants. Don't right? feed the plants. Yeah. They don't get to do it in the theatrical cut. Right. So, yeah. another reason to enjoy the director's cut more because you get one more song from the show. Too. Yeah. Well, if you haven't seen Little Shop of Horrors in a while, definitely recommend checking it out again. It still holds up well, it's still a lot of fun. And if you're a fan of the movie and you have a Blu ray player, it's worth the investment. Even if you own it on DVD already, it's definitely worth uh, upgrading to the director's cut. We enjoyed it, right? Yes. Loved it. Thanks for talking about this movie with me. Always fun to do the podcast with you. Thank you, doctor. (laughs) 
And thanks to you for listening, as always. Remember to like the Facebook page, facebook.com slash ScreenFacts. Let us know if you have a favorite scene for the movie or any other comments. You can also email us, ScreenFacts at Yahoo.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Jason Davis Voice. If you're listening with iTunes, please leave a review. Show theme music by Audionautics.com. And thanks to our announcer, Kim McKay from Kim'sVoice.com. Screen Facts with Jason Davis is a production of Jason Davis VoiceOver. Visit JasonDavisVoice.com if you need a voice for a commercial, narration, promo, internet video, e-learning or training program, and more. Click on the podcast page to get information about where you can download and listen to past episodes. Listen again next Wednesday for a new episode of Screen Facts with Jason Davis.